Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On our program tonight, finally face-to-face, federal and B.C. government officials and Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs meet in an effort to end anti-pipeline blockades. What's on the table for the talks and how quickly could there be an agreement? On a day when a new survey shows Canadians are split on how to deal with the blockades, but mostly united in condemning the Prime Minister's handling of the situation. Seven new countries reporting cases of the COVID-19 virus as the World Health Organization calls for greater readiness to contain the spread of the outbreak. We'll find out about the measures being taken in this country. And just weeks away from a federal budget, the parliamentary budget officer says the federal government has fiscal room to ramp up spending even more. The provinces, not so much. But we will begin tonight with the long-awaited face-to-face meeting between hereditary chiefs of the Wet'suwet'en First Nation and ministers from the federal and B.C. governments aimed at bringing an end to those rail blockades and protests that have sprung up across the country. The Federal Minister of Crown Indigenous Relations, Carolyn Bennett, arrived in Smithers, B.C. for the meeting. She's been uh, seeking for the past two weeks. She's being joined at the talks by her provincial counterpart, Scott Fraser. The talks made possible after the RCMP agreed to stop patrolling the Wet'suwet'en Territory and Coastal Gas Link agreed to stop work on the pipeline project on the territory for two days. What are being described as preliminary discussions are supposed to take place over the next two days. They're aimed at addressing the opposition of some of the hereditary chiefs of the Wet'suwet'en who oppose the Coastal Gas Link pipeline through their traditional territory. Here's the Minister of Crown Indigenous Relations as she arrived for the meeting. Minister, what are your uh, hopes today for these, this meeting with the, uh, with the chiefs? I, I, this is the chiefs' meeting and that we want uh, to reassure them that we are very interested in working with them uh, on uh, the issues of rights and title and the kinds of things that, that really will matter to the future of their nation. What would represent success today? I think success is that we, we have a plan to continue to talk. Okay, thank you very what, much. Can I just ask, the misunderstanding that was referenced uh, to the Chiefs last night, they said they got a message, there was a misunderstanding. What was that misunderstanding? I was in the air, <laughs> so uh, we, I was on my way here, we always wanted to meet, so... Uh, were, yeah. were the Wet'suwet'en and Hereditary Chiefs asked to ask, uh, to call for an end to blockades across Canada? No, I, I think the... I think the issue is that uh, I think everybody believes that there needed to be some space to be able to have a, um, respectful talks and uh, and uh, that's what uh, you know I think that we all believe their supporters need to continue to support but I think that we need that to, to uh, be a safe space for us to continue our Okay, thank you very much. What concessions are you willing to make in the meetings today? We've heard if, we are working, we, as you know, two years ago we signed an agreement with with the Office of the Wet'suwet'en, with the, uh, the uh, hereditary chiefs on child and family services. As you know, Murray Rankin's been doing good work uh, on their issues with the province of British Columbia on rights and title, and uh, I'm here to re- reaffirm that I'm very interested in accelerating that work on, on, on rights and title. Thank you very much. So what will be the focus of talks between the hereditary chiefs and the government ministers? And what will it take to make enough progress to see the rail blockades and protests come to an end? 
Stuart Phillip is the president of the Union of BC Indian Chiefs. We have reached him in Vancouver. Uh, Grand Chief Phillip, first of all, thanks for taking my call today. I appreciate it. Good afternoon. What do you think it will take for these discussions between the ministers and the hereditary chiefs of the Wet'suwet'en uh, to, to bring us to a successful outcome? What are you watching for? Well, the uh, demands are quite simple on the part of the Wet'suwet'en hereditary leadership. They are simply demanding that the Prime Minister and the Premier of British Columbia honour their invitation to a face-to-face -face meeting. They're seeking uh, a complete withdrawal of the, the um, heavy influx of RCMP into the territory. And finally, they're looking at um, rerouting the pipeline whereby it's not infringing upon the uh, integrity of their, their uh, Aboriginal title within their territory. So the meetings are happening today. In fact, we've, we've seen the release from the uh, Wet'suwet'en. Uh, because the RCMP has agreed to the demands of, of the hereditary chiefs to, to leave the territory, and Coastal GasLink today has agreed to take a two-day pause in the construction to allow space for these discussions. So do you believe that's also enough for the hereditary chiefs to perhaps signal they want an end to the rail blockades and the protests now, or is that premature? I think it's premature. There's a vast difference between the RCMP uh, making uh, public statements to the effect that they're prepared to leave. Um, they come in with a great deal of fanfare uh, into the territory. I think we want to see them leave in the same fashion uh, to know that uh, they have uh, completely and fully disengaged. They have removed their... Um, little Fort Apache um, detachment that they established on a very remote forest road. They need to vacate the territory completely. They need to be seen doing that. And in, in terms of coastal gasling, they were asked over a 10-year period to reconsider the routing of the line, and they have uh, vehemently... Uh, opposed that suggestion they've simply brushed it aside i think now now is the time for them to seriously consider rerouting the line so do, do you believe that ultimately the hereditary chiefs will hold to that demand that at the very least the pipeline be rerouted that that is a bottom line and beyond that uh the talks go nowhere if if that isn't what emerges and and fairly quickly from these conversations yes um i believe there has to be uh, substantive offers put on the table for for us to see any movement and de-escalation of the solidarity actions that have reverberated throughout the country. And do you think there also need to be concrete offers uh, for the BC and the federal governments? Uh, well, the federal government in particular. Do you think that? there will need to be a concrete commitment from the federal government to, to finally deal with this issue of hereditary rights and title uh, that is largely at the heart of this dispute. Yes, absolutely. Um, we know that the Trudeau government offered in a grandiose speech on Valentine's Day in 2018 to, to deal with these issues, and then um, they fell short of that. Now, once again, they're paying lip service to their intentions we need something beyond public platitudes and intentions. We need the government of Canada to sit down and begin this work.
where we have um, acknowledgement of the legal plurality that exists in this country with respect to the traditional uh, laws the um, and, and legal institutions of Indigenous peoples. Um, certainly it's reflected in the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. It's been at the heart of Supreme Court decisions. Now it's time to translate this into uh, uh, legislative reform so we have uh, a very well-delineated process to work through large-scale resource development proposals. Let me finish on this with you because we're, we are going to hear this. We've heard it from the government, this, this conversation around um, who speaks for the Wet'suwet'en people. And, and as we know, the elected band councils along the pipeline route, uh, they support the project. Many, uh, some of the hereditary chiefs do as well. What weight should the Wet'suwet'en supporters of the project who see this pipeline as a major economic benefit for their communities, what weight should they have in the decision-making process? Well, first of all, we need to clarify something that's been completely uh, overlooked uh, by the uh, public uh, debate over this issue. The so-called 20 band councils, the vast majority of them are not even Wet'suwet'en. They're from um, other territories and, and other groups. Some of them are even uh, from Alberta. So the collective notion that there are 20 Wet'suwet'en band councils uh, in support of the project is absolutely false. I believe there's um, possibly four or five Wet'suwet'en band councils that support the project. I believe four support it, one band council does not, and five hereditary leaders oppose it. So that's the reality. Uh, it's been uh, misreported on the notion that there are 20 Wet'suwet'en band councils that support the project. All right, uh, Stuart Phillip, thanks so much for your time. We'll uh, watch with great interest to see how these conversations go and uh, see what kind of uh, progress can be made uh, in these crucial meetings. Uh, thank you for your perspective. Always good to talk to you. Thank you. Well, also play, uh, paying close attention to the talks in Smithers, B.C., are the Indigenous leaders who have manned the blockades on rail lines in support of the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs who oppose the gas pipeline. One of them is Kenneth Deere. He is the secretary of the Mohawk Nation at Ganawaki, south of, of Montreal, and he joins me now. Uh, Mr. Deere, thanks for uh, taking time to speak with me today. I do appreciate it. What will you have to see out of those meetings in British Columbia between the hereditary chiefs and the ministers of the governments to, to allow you to take down your rail blockade at Ganawagi? I think that the, uh, you know, everything depends on the relationship between the chiefs and, and, and the federal government. It's been, it's been our position since the beginning that we are, uh, the blockades here and across Canada were, were in support of the, uh, the Wet'suwet'en chiefs. And um, the main art, uh, issues were the removal of the uh, uh, RCMP, uh, the tactical squad, from their uh, from their, uh, their their territory, and a suspension of the construction of the uh, of the pipeline until they have a uh, until they have some discussions with with the federal government. If those um, conditions are met, I think that the Wet'suwet'en chiefs may uh, uh, release us from uh, being necessary to to take any action to support them. Well, the, 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 the hereditary chiefs have said when, when they were asked about whether they would tell another uh, Indigenous nation to put up blockades or take down blockades, they said 
they wouldn't do that. They wouldn't tell the nation what to do. Are you, are you saying they've been, uh, they've been asking you to keep those blockades up or take them down? What's that relationship been? Well, we, we've, we've had some, uh, you know, uh, conversations with them because they, they were here in our, in our territory last week and uh, we had a, a private discussion, a closed door discussion with them. And uh, there's an understanding uh, between us about uh, the, the, what kind of conditions uh, are necessary for them to be satisfied and what kind of uh, support we're, we're, we're going to give them. So yes, it's true that as a sovereign people, we, we make our, our own decisions to, whether to, to end the, uh, our, our blockade or not. However, uh, we're there to support them and if the continuation of our, of our uh, blockades helps them achieve what they want to achieve that is our goal, and, and uh, we make those kind of sovereign decisions ourselves. The, you talked about the conditions. We, we know the, uh, the uh, hereditary chiefs have, have put out a notice to the media saying that uh, the discussions with the RCMP have, have gone well. They've agreed to halt patrols uh, on, uh, on that territory, and the discussions are underway with the federal minister and the B.C. minister. Are you seeing enough now to say you're in a position to take down that blockade? I, no, I, I don't think the discussions haven't begun yet. I mean, they, they could collapse you know, terribly uh, in the next few hours. We're, we're going to wait and, and see what happens after the, uh, the discussions that uh, take place today before we want to see them completed before we make any kind of a decision. Right. They're, they're being described as kind of preliminary discussions. It could last a couple of days initially. Uh, so your, your blockade's there to stay till you see some... Uh, some positive movement in these discussions with the ministers. Is that right? Exactly. We, we want to see something concrete, uh, something that uh, probably in writing, perhaps, but uh, something that has the confidence of the, uh, the, the Wet'suwet'en chiefs that, that uh, these blockades have gotten them as far as they, they can, and, and they'll, they'll go on, from on, the, uh, on their own from that point onward. Okay, so it's possible your blockade could be there for several days to come. Well, you know, uh, negotiations with the feds never take one day. Uh, they take more than that. But they, the feds should have been at this table, you know, weeks ago. Uh, it's don't don't blame us because uh, it's taken this long. Uh, I think it's the it's the feds have could have taken this step, you know, two or three weeks ago, and we we wouldn't might not have to be here. Is the bottom line? I mean, when you say in in support of the hereditary chiefs for. For many of them who oppose the pipeline project, the bottom line for them has been uh, there should be no pipeline through their territory. Uh, so anything short of that, um, how will you view that? If there isn't a decision to, 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 to scrap this project, do your, does your blockade stay? The Wet'suwet'en are not saying to, to, uh, to end the, uh, the, the pipeline. If you want to have a pipeline, just go around them. Uh, they're, 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 they've been flexible and they've made proposals uh, to you, you know, uh, to the government a long time ago, and there's been more than one route that, that, that they, uh, that's been proposed. That, that could be used, that could satisfy everybody. Right. I mean, the company's saying it's not practical to go around, but of course that could, that could be all, all part of the negotiation, right? Well, you know, corporations have, uh, are there to make money. They're not there... They, you know, they're just, just trying to take the cheapest route. 
Uh, and uh, that not, the cheapest shoe is not necessarily the, the best shoe because they're going through pristine land where, where the, the, the land is, is still hasn't been used. It's still in, in the, the, the kind of condition that you want lands to be uh, for, in, in, for, uh, for cultural and, and also for climate change processes. The, 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 the pipeline can, can follow a, a highway that's already been uh, disturbed, that's already, um, you know, it has an infrastructure right close to it. And if it follows the, uh, you know, a, a highway route, you will not be disturbing pristine land. Let me finish on this with you because I, I want you to have the opportunity to respond to uh, the comments of the Quebec Premier who said that Quebec police have not enforced the injunction against your blockade because uh, warriors at uh, Ganawage have A-47, AK-47 assault rifles. Uh, what is your response to his comments and what do you think, how do you think that influences the situation and a sometimes tense situation? Uh, his comments are, are incredibly irresponsible. The, uh, the, we've made it very clear that the, the, uh, the protesters here are, is a peaceful process and they're absolutely unarmed. And that uh, the, the, his, his comments are, are inflammatory and uh, designed, I guess, to turn the public against us. And, uh, and not only that, but it, but it, it raises the tension and um, uh, it's not the kind of thing that a, a, a premier is looking for a peaceful resolution to this a difference uh, the situation would use. I, I think he's, you know, he's really uh, irresponsible and, and provoking, uh, trying to provoke the Mohawks, but we won't be provoked. We have said that we're, we're, we're peaceful. We said that we're, we're not armed and we're going to stay that way. All right. Uh... Are you expecting the, the SQ? I mean, there's a there's a relationship between the Peacekeeper Police Force at uh, at Ganawake, and and it's primarily responsible for policing there. Uh, in in fact, some suggest it's entirely responsible. Are you expecting the SQ to try and enforce an injunction on that land? I, I expect the uh, the Sûreté de Quebec to use their, uh, their their best intentions. I expect them to be wise. With their uh, and not uh, make any kind of intervention into into our our, our, our territory, the Gunawaga peacekeepers are, are the law enforcement agency here, and uh, and and uh, they they have considered this issue a, a civil matter and not a not a criminal or uh, a matter. So um, the the S the de Quebec is uh, is respecting uh, the will of the, uh, the the population here in in, in Gunawaga. Remember the the. Uh, this is not a, a bunch of radical people who are who, who are protesting here. This this uh, blockade has has a broad broad support of the entire entire community. So if the SQ wants to come in here and arrest everybody, um, I, I think they'd have a very difficult time to do that. Let me just come back to one quick question before I let you go. Uh, um, why are there blockades to support the hereditary chiefs who oppose the pipeline when we've seen elected band councils and? other hereditary chiefs support it. Explain how you've taken the position you've taken in support of those chiefs who don't want the pipeline when other Wet'suwet'en do. Well, uh, first of all, the, uh, the Dalgamuk uh, uh, decision uh, made it very clear that the, these uh, Wet'suwet'en la uh, land is unseated and it belongs to the, tra to the traditional hereditary system of governance. Uh, those are the, they are the owners uh, of the land. Uh, the the, uh, the, band, the elected band councils are created by the Indian Act and uh, and have only been in existence for maybe a hundred years. They're, they are they are not the the uh, the, uh, the the owners of, uh, of the land, and the Supreme Court has has said so, and that's the, the rule of law. So this it's the Wet'suwet'en chiefs that that need to be 
that have to have their uh, their consent if this this pipeline is, is is going to go going to go true. There are there might be some divisions of, among the uh, among some of the uh, uh, people who follow the hereditary system, but the the chieftainship titles are still there. They they, they have that responsibility, and it's. Uh, uh, it, they are the leaders of the, of the traditional hereditary uh, uh, people, and the uh, uh, sub chiefs who have a, who support the pipeline are not chiefs. They are they are secondary uh, uh, authorities, uh, and and the chiefs are still uh, are still the uh, the supreme authority on, on, in that territory. And uh, in, in any political system, uh, you have to uh, recognize the, the, the leadership and the system that, that, that they have, just like we recognize that. Uh, Prime Minister Trudeau is the, is, is, the, is the head of government for Canada and not Mr. Scheer. All right. Uh, Kenneth, here, you've been generous with your time today. I do appreciate it, and we'll continue to watch as the situation unfolds. And thanks for taking time to speak with me. You're very welcome. And there's new information out today on what Canadians are saying about the anti-pipeline blockades and the way the Prime Minister has handled the situation and uh, more information about the whole uh, situation and how we got here, in fact. Let's bring in Shachi Curl from the Angus Reid Institute. She joins me from Toronto. Uh, Shachi Curl, good to see you again. Thanks for taking time to speak with me. Thanks for having me, Peter, as for, always. First of all, tell me about this latest survey of Canadians, when it was done and how it was done. So we are fresh, fresh, fresh out of field. We were in field up until yesterday, popped it out this morning, and uh, fielded basically between Monday, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, very fresh numbers. Uh, spoke to a representative sample of Canadians, 1,500 from coast to coast in both official languages, talking to people in every age group, demographic, and the usual census demographic cuts. All right, let's talk about the findings. When asked about the options for handling these blockades, Patience and dialogue versus use of force. Where do Canadians come down? Well, Canadians are, you know, they're, they're pretty split, Peter. Almost 50-50, but not quite. Slightly more are, are of the view that we should be uh, looking to get these blockades down and force injunctions where necessary. Of course, we're down to, I think, I believe, just one blockade remaining at this stage. But even then, about half the country saying, get rid of the blockades, the other half saying, go slowly, slowly, have patience, deal with this through dialogue and ne negotiation. And there's an interesting demographic here, a, sp a split in those numbers, older men versus younger women, and how they see this differently. Tell me about that. Absolutely. So, look, um, this cuts so many different ways, and what it really speaks to, because it's, it's, an easy, it's an easy finding to say, well, Canadians are divided or Canadians are split, but it's really about who's split. And it's not as though people in this country are split evenly among themselves. You have certain parts and certain cuts of the population who feel very strongly on one hand and other parts of the population who feel very, very strongly on the other hand. So if you are someone who looks at this through the lens of the economy or law and order, you tend to skew a little bit older in age, more likely to be over the age of 55, more likely to be male, more likely to be a past conservative voter, uh, and more likely to have a slightly higher income, you're more likely to also say, you know what, get those blockades down. On the other hand, younger women, uh, people living in cities, those with lower incomes but higher levels of education, basically those who tend to skew more to the left of center, voted for the NDP, maybe the Liberals in the last election, they're much more likely to say, hey, let's all take a breath here. And how do Canadians view this conflict? Is it about the economy and the rule of law, uh, or is it about Indigenous rights and the environment? 
Okay, so again, you have basically Canadians cut in half on this issue. Half of them say that they see it either as an issue that is that is primarily viewed through the lens of the economy and the impact on the economy, or through a law and order lens. Look, uh, you may disagree with the pipeline existing, but you can't erect blockades, you can't block ports, you can't block rail lines. Or on the other half, and, and this is where that older man, younger woman uh, split comes along. This is where you start to see regional splits as well. This is where people either see this issue and this conflict primarily through the lens of Indigenous rights or through the lens of climate change and the environment. Let's talk about the Prime Minister and how he's handled this situation. What did you find in this survey of Canadians? Well, you know what? The Prime Minister is getting it from all sides on this one. Uh, he is roundly, widely seen to be doing a bad job on this issue. Just about one in five say he's doing a good job. That's largely drawn from his own Liberal base, people who voted for the Liberal Party in the last election. But Peter, huh, only 3%, which is basically statistic decimal dust, say that he's done a very good job. And when you look at those past Liberal voters, very few of them think that he's done a very good job. So this is a sense in a case where people who are saying he's doing a good job are wanting to stay loyal to their guy. But really, Conservative voters, Conservatives furious with his performance on this issue, New Democrats, people on the left of centre, Bloc voters also furious with him on this issue. Okay, let's move to the, one of the, it's been a, a singular feature of the Prime Minister's time in office, reconciliation, a guiding principle for the Liberal government and the Prime Minister. What are Canadians saying about how this situation affects that process? You know, we've talked about how much division there is in the country around these issues. Uh, there are a couple of questions on which we find some consensus, but again, from different sides of the equation or different points of view. 80% of Canadians say that this has done nothing to help reconciliation. Indeed, it has harmed reconciliation. Uh, the viewpoint of those who see this through the lens of Indigenous rights, overwhelmingly of the view that the blockades have been, uh, and, and, and the dismantling of them, the arrests, have been an affront to the reconciliation process. And those on the right of centre, those seeing it through the lens of law and order, saying, no, of course reconciliation hasn't been helped because, indeed, there are members of First Nations, there are Indigenous communities in British Columbia who actually support the pipeline as well. And they're of the view that reconciliation's been harmed because those particular members of First Nations say that they're not, you know, by, by virtue of these blockades, what they wish for is being stymied or blocked. Mm. Okay, uh, so as we have these meetings uh, between ministers and the, the Wet'suwet and hereditary chiefs, one of the big questions is who speaks for the First Nations peoples in that territory? Who should have the final say? Some uh, of the hereditary chiefs opposed to the gas pipeline or the elected band councils who all support it. Where are Canadians on that question? Well, there isn't a majority view on this question, but a plurality, 45% actually say that it is the elected band councils who are who should have the say and who should be the people who speak for the Wet'suwet'en on this issue. Now that's followed by about 30% of Canadians who say it should be both and about 9% who say it's the hereditary chiefs. Again, Peter, the splits on this are so profound because that that 45% who say that it should be the hereditary sorry, the elected 
band councils, the 45% who say that it should be elected band councils, are predominantly on the right side of the political spectrum who are looking at this going, yes, if there are elected band councils who support this, as the majority do, let them speak for this. On the other side of the equation, People who, uh, who look at this through the lens of Indigenous rights are actually split. The same number say the hereditary chiefs as say the elected band councils. And so that is what is driving that top line result. All right, let's finish on this. Uh, and that's the question of overall support for the Coastal GasLink Pipeline project. What's happened to support for the project since these blockades went up? You know, we did our first survey on this a couple of weeks ago, and at the time I said the needle is going to move. Where the needle is on, on support today is not where it's going to be in the next couple of weeks, depending on what happens with these blockades. In the last two weeks, what we've seen is this. Support for the pipeline itself has ticked up about 10 points. Why? A couple of things personal proximity to being uh, disrupted or put out by the blockades. If you're someone who had a train canceled, lost a job at the port or, or because via freight wasn't getting through, if you're someone who, who had a, was dealing with a bridge blockade or, or stuck on a go commuter train who couldn't get home to their families, chances are your tolerance for this is much lower and your support for the project in turn ticks up. But here's another thing. The level of awareness of this project is not where it was two weeks ago. Indeed, as more people learn right. about it, that is another driver of why we're starting to see a little bit of support tick up for it. All right. Interesting findings, uh, as always. Shachi Curl from the Angus uh, Reid Institute. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Peter. Let's shift our attention now to the coronavirus outbreak and the ongoing spread of that around the world. There are more cases now in Iran, Italy and South Korea, and clusters of infections in communities in those countries. In Canada, a sixth case has now been confirmed in Ontario. He's the husband of a woman who recently returned from Iran and has also tested positive. And the stock markets plunged today over concerns of a pandemic. The head of the World Health Organization said today it would be a fatal mistake for any country to assume it won't be hit by the virus. And he warned rich countries who think they might be safer to expect surprises. Canada's foreign affairs minister had this advice today for Canadian travellers. I mean, it's the March break, so families want to be together, families want to enjoy themselves, but I think uh, people should use common sense. I mean, we've seen uh, an outbreak in Italy, we've seen an outbreak in South Korea, we know there's a number of cases in Japan. Uh, our travel advice is, is dynamic. We review that almost hour by hour to make sure that we have the most updated information. So I think people, like I said, they should really read where they want to go, why they want to go there, what kind of activities, perhaps avoid big crowds. We've seen in Italy that some of the uh, big sports events have been uh, canceled to make sure that people uh, are well protected. If people are going in a zone, in an area, in a country, which we already know there is an issue, uh, people should really think twice because obviously it's about their health and safety for their family. Well, let's discuss Canada's uh, level of preparedness for the coronavirus outbreak and what might come next in this country. Arif Varani is the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Justice. Garnet Genoas is the critic for Canada-China relations for the official opposition Conservatives. Don Davies is the health critic for the NDP. It's good to see you all tonight, gentlemen. Thank you for being here. Great to Mr. Varani, let me start with you. The head of the World Health Organization warned today that even rich countries who think they're safe and have good plans in place could be in for a surprise with this virus. Is virus. 
Is Canada ready for any of those surprises? I think Canada is ready. I mean, we've already demonstrated that. We've learned a lot from SARS uh, about 15 years ago. We've got a lot of very competent public health professionals in place. We've got a very robust legislative response with the Quarantine Act. We've seen the Trenton exercise go well. We've got people quarantined in Cornwall. We've got people at all of the frontiers in terms of the international airports that receive passengers from abroad. So we've got a lot of mechanisms in place to handle this. And we anticipate that there will be more cases, but we feel like we've got a system in place that's going to reassure Canadians that this is under control. All right, Mr. Janis, we've heard from public health officials in Canada that the risk of transmissions uh, in this country is still low, uh, yet we have the Minister of Health urging Canadians to consider stockpiling medicine and food in case the virus strikes them or their family. Uh, what does that messaging suggest to you? Well, obviously, when Canadians hear that message, they're going to be uh, quite concerned. And um, we're, we're asking questions aimed at being constructive on this. It is noteworthy that uh, other countries uh, in the early phase certainly were taking some steps that Canada was not taking. Uh, so we've asked the government, why is it that Canada chose not to take those steps? And, uh, you know, the government is obviously uh, part of conversations on this that, that, uh, that other parties are not part of. But we are, we're asking constructive questions about why maybe Canada hasn't taken all the same steps that some other countries have. Uh, and we're hearing those responses, and, and we certainly uh, hope that everything goes as well as possible. But we have 13 cases in this country so far. We, we don't seem to have any community-to-community -community spread. We've seen some spread between family members uh, because of typically travel outside the country. Uh, does that suggest, look, our record speaks for itself. We, we have 13 cases, no outbreaks in communities, uh, transmission from community to community, or is that being too smug? Well, I, I met with members of the Chinese community in Toronto on the weekend, and, and I know there is a lot of concern. And what was expressed to me in the context of those conversations was uh, a, a desire for, for stronger screening, stronger safeguards, um, and, and stronger mechanisms that, that are more reflective of what we may have seen in some other countries. It's, it is noteworthy that uh, you know there have been some some countries where there's been sort of all of a sudden a very uh, dramatic explosion in, in the number of cases, and, and nobody wants to see that happen in Canada. Again, we're trying to ask the government questions about uh, what steps they've chosen to take okay. and chosen not to take and, and be as constructive as we can be in that conversation. Mr. Mr. Davies, you've raised some, some uh, repeated and serious concerns suggesting that we're not as prepared as we, we claim to be or, or at least Canadians aren't hearing enough about a plan. What's your big concern? Well, first of all, we're very concerned about the news of the new cases in Iran and Italy. Uh, and as well, there's comments by Mr. Macron in France to the extent that they think a pandemic in France is likely. Um, this is the very first time that the number of, of new cases of COVID-19 outside of China exceeds the number of new cases inside China. You know, it, it appears clear that uh, many countries of the world are, are preparing to change their policy from containment to one of preparing for a potential pandemic. Now, the, um, the response to the Canadian government, I think, has, is, is slow, and I think they're getting behind on a number of fronts. Internationally, we have Canadians in Iran. There doesn't seem, seem to be any plan to repatriate them. Domestically here, um, we have these comments of the Minister of Health that came out of really nowhere. Uh, to the extent that Canadians should be stockpiling, which is very contrary to the position she's taken up to now, mm -hmm. which is, you know, we only have 12 cases, uh, risk of, of trans transmission is low, etc., which has created a lot of alarm. And finally, we have the nurses in Canada saying that the federal guidelines on, uh, on masks is not sufficient to protect frontline right. healthcare workers or patients. Ms. Mr. Varani, Canadians, what about that suggestion of a mixed message from the federal government? Uh, one hand, low risk to Canadians of a wider outbreak, 
and yet the health minister suggesting that stockpiling food and medicine not a bad idea. What are Canadians supposed to think of that? Well, I don't think it's a mixed message. I think what's important is that the situation has been handled well thus far because of the competence that we have in terms of leadership, in terms of our healthcare professionals, and the statutory mechanisms that we have available to us and what we learn from SARS. Second point is that Patty Haidu and Minister Champagne are reflecting what we're seeing all around us, why we're talking about this on your panel today. This is spreading to many, many countries well beyond China, South Korea, Northern Italy, Iran, for example. What we're urging is people to be realistic about the chance of further cases in Canada and people to take some autonomy about their own situation in terms of being doing proper research, informing authorities, and reporting to authorities, most importantly, if they believe they may be symptomatic. That is fundamental if, this is to, if we were to maintain the good response we've had thus far because what's important is that when people have felt symptomatic, they've alerted hospitals in advance, they've put on a mask, so people were prepared to receive them and isolate immediately. Uh, Mr. Janice, we, we did hear at the health committee yesterday a top health official saying, look, yeah, we're, we're working on containment, but if, if for some reason or in some part of the country that were to fail, we, we have a plan for that too to, to deal with trying to mitigate uh, the spread. That might include cancelling big events and uh, you know, uh, making sure big groups of people aren't together. Um, when we hear that, and is, that a, is that enough to hear that they're working on it or do you think there's, they should be uh, actually you know, rolling out details of exactly what will happen when if there is an outbreak and at what stage you know, different, different government actions might kick into place? Yeah, well, well, the government should be as transparent with the public as, as possible. Um, and there is some dissonance in terms of the messages the public is getting. Because early on, uh, we heard from the government saying that uh, given the low risk, it wasn't necessary to take certain measures, whether it was limiting flights, uh, uh, extra screening, those kinds of things. It wasn't necessary to do that. And then on the other hand, now we, we hear, you know, don't worry, but uh, stockpile food and medicine. Kind of, you know, very very li likely seeming contradictory messages. I understand that uh, Mr. Verani wants to praise his, his government colleagues. Certainly on the public service side, we have, we have professionals, we have experts that are likely ad advising them. But what the public is hearing, uh, there, there's dissonance and there is a lack of, of clarity on that. So I think the government needs to, uh, if they have a plan, to show the plan uh, and to communicate clearly about what the risks and the and the and the right responses from Canadians are, Mr. Davies, do you think a, a wider outbreak in this country is inevitable? That's really hard to say. You know, I think one thing that all parties share is that we all hope that this virus is contained very quickly and that uh, uh, you know Canadians can get on with their lives and, and that this virus can can be basically. Uh, uh, it can cease being such a, a major public health concern as soon as possible. But on the other hand, vigilance and preparation are absolutely essential in this case. And I do think the time has come for the, the government to uh, unveil a detailed plan and share that with Canadians because being prepared in advance is key to containment. So uh, we're not hearing from the government other than you know, this vague, this vague kind of admonition to, you know, maybe be prepared. Well, what does that mean? I mean, you know, why should we be worried? When the Minister of Health says that, people assume that she may have, must have information that others don't have, and it creates a little feeling of panic. So I think it's time to, uh, to, to come clean with Canadians, tell us what we need to know so that we can all adequately prepare uh, in advance in case uh, a pandemic does uh, ultimately come to Canada. All right, gentlemen, thanks for your time tonight. Do appreciate it. We'll uh, continue to follow the story, of course. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Thank you.
Well, the finance minister is expected to deliver his budget at the end of March, is what we're hearing, and he's under pressure to fund some big-ticket promises, including a national pharmacare plan. And a new report today from the parliamentary budget officer suggests he'll have room for more federal spending if he wants to, but the fiscal picture, not quite as rosy for most of the provinces and territories in this country. Parliamentary budget officer Yves Giroux is with me now. It's good to see you again. Likewise. Thanks for being here. How did you conclude that the federal government uh, has room to increase spending and still remain uh, fiscally and financially sustainable. Um, that's uh, counterintuitive, I agree. And when I saw the conclusions of these calculations myself, I had to scratch my head a bit to understand why. And the reason why the federal government is sustainable despite running deficits and still has room to um, increase its spending or decrease its revenues is because the big ticket items when it comes to federal spending uh, transfers to provinces and territories and transfers to persons. They're constrained under current legislation. For example, OAS payments, they're capped to grow to inflation. Uh, so checks that individuals receive. Transfers to provinces, if you think of the Canada social transfer, for example, it's limited at 3% growth per year. Uh, most other transfers are limited to nominal GDP, so nominal growth in the nominal GDP. So the big expenditure items of the federal government are constrained, so their growth is constrained, mm -hmm. whereas at the provincial level, it's a totally different story. Most of the expenditures are health-related, so health-related expenditures with an aging population leads to ever-increasing health expenditures. And I'm going to get into some of that uh, in a little more detail. But um, Okay, so uh, let me ask it this way. So, so for critics who, who may want the government to, to rein in spending and, you know, uh, push down some of, those, mm -hmm. uh, some of those deficits that we're going to see for years to come, um, you're, you, I mean, you're, what are you saying here? Are you, are you saying those critics are wrong? Or are you just saying that if the measure for this government, which, it, which it's been, is the debt-to-GDP ratio, and that that is a fiscally sustainable path, mm -hmm. then they can go ahead and spend more along that path, uh, leaving aside whether deficits should be reduced or not? So what we're, we've done is looking at status quo policies. So if you put everything on autopilot, that's what will happen, uh, or is very likely to happen. It's not... A policy predicament or it's not a prediction of what will indeed happen it's if you put on autopilot if nothing changes nothing you, changes that's what will happen so uh, yeah it's possible that some people would say yes there's room for additional increases uh, additional spending uh, but the other side of the equation is also equally possible it, it can be uh, it base it's based on personal preferences and political preferences so Fiscal sustainability we've defined as finishing a 75-year period at the same debt-to-GDP ratio as we currently are. For some people, it's already too high. Mm. Uh, so we could have chosen a different level of debt-to-GDP ratio as sustainable, but there's no agreed to, commonly agreed to um, desirable debt-to-GDP ratio. So that's why it's a bit difficult to make a judgment call. How much debt is enough debt or how much debt is too much debt? There's no agreement, there's no consensus on that. So that's why we chose current level at the end of the 75-year period. We've defined that as sustainable. Of course, uh, some people will say that anything above zero is too high. Right, you should be saying if you have any room to spend, you should instead be knocking down the deficit. Exactly. Or debt. Or other, the other side of the equation is 
government investments or government spending is inherently inherently is good uh, <laughs> and so you should spend as much as possible on good things so I'm not placing judgment right. on that okay uh, let's talk about that what you found in the provinces uh, you look at their fiscal sustainability as well what did you find uh, we found that in aggregate provinces and territories have a fiscal gap of 0.3 percent of GDP so it means that in aggregate they'll have to increase uh, taxes or reduce spending by about six billion dollars per year to be sustainable again on status quo policies over the next 75 years uh, but there's wide disparities across provinces and territories start at the good end of the spectrum or the sustainable end right. of the spectrum with Quebec and they're sustainable they have some wiggle room and the reason is that they start with a surplus position due to their ta high tax rates and they'll also benefit from increasing an increasing share of transfers because of their lower than average per capita GDP so their GDP will increase but at a more at a slower pace than the Canadian average so Quebec's okay and I think you found that uh, when I say okay so sustainable yeah. Ontario yeah. sustainable Nova yes. Scotia and BC they're, yes they're all the ones yes all the other provinces and territories have fiscal poli uh, policies that are not sustainable exactly right so meaning uh, what for them uh, and, I, and I guess put that in the context of the debate that's underway in this country still about changing the equalization formula mm -hmm. so what as I read your report today you're saying federal government pretty good fiscal sustainability mm -hmm. shape some provinces not so much and so we'll hear the argument the federal government should be providing more money to the provinces and that's not a bad argument at all when you look at these numbers fed sustainable provinces and territories not so there are not that many solutions to that that situation either the feds increase transfers to provinces and territories or reduce taxes to vacate tax room that provinces and territories can then pick up can, can choose to occupy or not mm -hmm. uh, but then it's their choice so there are these these two solutions all right lots to watch uh, as followed from this report and see how it uh, f you know factors into the conversations we see mm -hmm. about fiscal sustainability in this country uh, Parliamentary Budget Officer Yves Giroux, always a pleasure. Good to see you again. Likewise. Thank you. Let's bring in now our uh, Thursday panel of party commentators. Susan Smith is a Liberal commentator, Tim Powers is a Conservative commentator, and Robin McLaughlin is an NDP commentator. Good to see you all. Good Another busy week since last time we talked, and we're back. Let's start with the same thing I think we were talking about last week, and that's the, the blockades and uh, the impasse over the coastal gasoline pipeline movement we're seeing uh, now in terms of uh, conversations and discussions and negotiations. Uh, what's at stake in all of this for the Prime Minister, Susan? Well, I think the peaceful operation of the country uh, as well as continued economic confidence in, in the country. Uh, the Prime Minister, I mean, this has been a complicated, fraught situation. I think it's, a, the, unfortunately for Prime Minister Trudeau, 150 years of boiling over mistakes and pent-up resentment is is happening on his watch and I don't think you can say he's responsible for it I think it's just been a point that it's bubbled over again it has it many other times I think what's important and what the Prime Minister is now trying to do and people are trying to do is divide this into the two issues that it actually is the first is the coastal gas uh, pipeline um, uh, declaring that I do some work for the company uh, one of the companies that are proponents there, but just from an observational perspective, the first thing is the wet sweat and have to solve what their issues are. The second is how to address the long-standing grievances that people have. 
um, from a reconciliation process. I think you're seeing more movement to splitting these two issues. Uh, there's there's a meeting with the, the ministers, um, BC and Canada, with the chiefs in Wet'suwet'en today. Mm -hmm. And then there's a first minister's meeting coming down the road. So I think there's starting to be opportunities for the discussions to be pulled apart in a good way. So the issue of the, the trajectory of the pipeline and whether it progresses and how it progresses and the issue of reconciliation can be tackled two different ways. Okay, First Minister's coming up uh, on the 12th and 13th of March with Indigenous leaders on day one and then the First Minister's on day two. Uh, Tim, how do you see this? And uh, I mean, I, I suppose a lot hinges on where these discussions go in Smithers, BC as to whether or not it looks like the Prime Minister's strategy was the right strategy or whether it starts to fall apart. Well, where you can ascribe blame to the Prime Minister that's not helping this circumstance because it's led to this frustration that Susan's talked about is inflating expectations, not in the immediate term, uh, but early days of his election, he talked about making Indigenous reconciliation a front and center issue. As noble as that is to say, because of that very 150-year history, you couldn't get that done in four or five years. And I think there were a lot of Indigenous leaders and First Nation groups who thought more things would be done now. So park that for the moment. In terms of the management of this, it, it, it's a tough one. I think you got to give him credit and, 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 and all the leaders credit, uh, the provincial leaders and different Indigenous leaders for at least so far there not being any violence, there not being any bloodshed, uh, and things are slowly starting to come back to normal. Having worked in the Indigenous arena as an Indigenous negotiator, the same rules don't apply, and not everybody understands that. Uh, I think, though, the final point on all of this is the polls are showing the Prime Minister is wearing this, fairly or unfairly, mm -hmm. that's the nature we of politics. We saw an Angus Reid poll earlier in our show that uh, yeah, only 20% of Canadians... Poll that show the Conservatives are ahead by 5% for whatever that's worth. And, so, Ang and Angus Reid says today 20% of Canadians think he's doing a good job handling this. Yeah, and so those aren't great numbers. So he needs things like the First Minister's meetings, like the budget, and an ongoing peaceful resolution to this to help change the channel for him. Robin, what do you think? Well, you asked about the Prime Minister's strategy, and you know, I'll start by saying this is not an easy situation. I don't have the answers to this, but the problem, I think, for many of the Canadians looking and themselves perhaps not knowing this, the answer, are, do look to the Prime Minister to resolve this. Uh, and you know, I don't know that there really was a coherent strategy. From the start, he was saying this is a provincial issue. Mm -hmm. So the pipelines within BC, yes, that means that it has jurisdiction over the, the approval of the pipeline. Uh, but that doesn't mean because it involves Indigenous peoples that it is a federal issue. And it was as far back as 1993 that a process was set up to try to help resolve the treaty, outstanding treaty issues for BC in particular. And out of the 30-odd uh, First Nations bands, there's only three treaties that have been signed. The Wet'suwet'en are not one of those. So to uh, Susan's uh, point, uh, the long-standing issue is the reason the sh the, this current issue is so problematic because we have not as a country successive governments resolved a, a system to allow us to to have treaties in place that would make this a lot easier to to sort out so the prime minister though went from saying it wasn't federal jurisdiction to saying that dialogue is important and to asking for patience four days later saying the blockades must come down uh, and then seeing OPP roll in I think that kind of disconnect and um, has been hard for Canadians to follow and say that this person who has elevated expectations, as Tim said, doesn't seem to have a strategy in place. I think um, when you have 150 years of things not going right, in fact, things going very wrong, 
you can't fix them overnight. I don't think Prime Minister Trudeau ever said he was going to fix them overnight. He just said we're going to tackle the problems that we've had, and this is a priority well, he, for me. He did say, I think it was it was in February of 2018. He did pledge that the government was going mm -hmm. to finally tackle uh, the issues around treaty rights and sure. and this the, what's really at the center of, of the dispute sure. today. And the chiefs will say that almost nothing's been done, but done it's, on that. Two I, well, it's a very complicated. Highly critical of that. Well, too. it's it's a very. I mean, I've said before on this show, Peter. There's no playbook on what to do. There's certainly a lot of playbooks on what not, what not to do when you look at Oka and Ipperwash and Caledonia and other other ones of these things. It is provincial jurisdiction. The police are enforcing the law. We don't live in a country where our politicians tell our police what to do. But it goes back to, Robin, to your point, the initial, um, uh, I don't want to say conflict, but the initial issue here is within the Wet'suwet'en community themselves. It's the hereditary chiefs, some hereditary chiefs who don't approve the route of the gas pipeline despite the consultations, despite the sign-ons, and the elected chiefs who do. They actually have an internal dispute that they have to resolve themselves. Ideally, the you but, know the majority the, but, voice would come and say, the, "Please the, stand but down." But the internal for these dispute stems from the fact that you know they're they're conflicted over the rights and positions taken by the elected band councils under the Indian Act, right. which is rejected yeah. by the hereditary chiefs, because they have they have a much longer-standing traditional uh, right. Uh, to make decisions about the use of their territory. And I'm which far the from an expert. Which the, the Supreme, Supreme Court has yeah, upheld. So. And I'm far, and, and I'm not even close to an expert on the, the, in, the local indigenous politics and the hereditaries versus the electeds. But what I do know is that the majority of the wet sweat and community are supportive of this. There are more than 20 bands that have been consulted with for seven years. There's impact benefits agreements. And there are chiefs and communities and matriarchs, even in the hereditary chiefs, that are saying, we're tired of managing poverty. We want to manage, we want our communities to have opportunity. We want it to be done the right way. We want it to be done environmentally. Where we might be, Tim, at the end of this conversation, and I've heard it from, uh, and earlier in our program, we uh -huh. had two, two of the, uh, indigenous chiefs, First Nations chiefs, uh, well, one chief and one representative from Ganawagi talking about, at the, at the end of the day, if it means the bottom line is rerouting the pipeline, uh, that's that's the probably immovable demand from the hereditary chiefs. Uh, how, how does a government react to that? How does BC react to that in order to try and resolve this situation? When the company said, we're not interested in rerouting it. Well, pipeline. you're going to reroute a pipeline. I'm, again, not an expert in pipelines, but I guess it's going to cost in the hundreds of millions of dollars to do for all sorts of reasons, new consultations. But governments are going to have to make a call on, on whether they support that notion or whether they well, take the I, side Well, that would set a very dangerous precedent. I suspect it will end up going back to another form of court to adjudicate, I suspect, the court, or the federal government, as they did in, in other pipeline disputes and other resource disputes, would try and find a third party, i.e. a court, to rule on, on all of that. But Again, back to the question of Justin Trudeau, he, I, I think it was that inflation of expectations that has led to the problems he's had with the way people are viewing his leadership here. Again, that's whether that's fair or not, I think that's what's happened. Susan's right in how she describes the uh, internal dynamics of, of the wet Wet'suwet'en, but that isn't what Canadians are looking at to the degree. They, they see their prime minister, they see rail lines being blockaded, they hear premiers saying you need to act. They aren't listening to jurisdiction or indigenous politics. They're looking at a prime minister who promised to do better on this front and hasn't, and that's why he's suffering. But, the, but 
I mean, I think to suggest that it's up to the wet sweatin' to sort out what they want here isn't respecting the situation that we've created as, as a colonial, uh, in our colonial past. So the, whether we like it or not, the hereditary system, as you noted off the top, for the wet sweatin' is the historic system, and the Supreme Court has upheld that they have the right to determine what happens within their territory. And that's a territory of 22,000 square kilometers area. The elected chiefs have control over their, the, the Whatever lands. Whatever parcel of land. 35 square kilometer area. And they're there to govern and for law and order in that territory. So if, to say that it's not, they didn't do their job, I think it's much more fair to say that obviously the consultation was not thorough enough if there seems to be this discord between the people that have the Supreme Court and upheld announcement. Sure, Robin, Excuse me, I'm not done talking yet. Well, but I'm just saying that it's, the federal government uh, can't choose whether the pipeline's right or the people are right. It must set up a process that allows this to be resolved. It can't pick sides. But the process is there, and the, I think it's, it's important to know that the consultation did take place. For seven years it took place. But what happens, as within every society, not everybody agrees. I mean, nowhere in this country but, but has there but ever but been 100% agreement and, and on anything. And the chiefs opposed to it have, have been saying for, for, for those seven years, they were the voice saying, you're not putting this through our It territory. wasn't the same group because they turfed three of the matriarch chiefs, three of the women who were part of it. So there's all kinds of internal dynamics right. that's complicated. I don't understand it from an external perspective. What I do understand is there are two issues at play. We have to get back to trying to separate them. One, getting the wet, how, enabling the Wet'suwet'en community to decide for themselves who speaks for them. Right? Is it the hereditary chiefs? Is it the elected chiefs? Allow them to come to the conclusion that they want. And then separately, and this is, I think, with having Indigenous leaders as part of the First Minister's thing, dealing, continuing to deal well, with the issue of reconciliation and what it takes to move that bar. And I guess in some ways it might be a, pretty, it might be a brave move to call a First Minister's conference a month, yeah. less than a month from now with where this may or may not be resolved. Well, I, mean, I actually think it's, it's, it's right either, Well, it's either a chance it's to... It's not the only issue. It's I, mean, a, I think no. Jason Kenney's going to have some other... Well, I was just going to say, yeah. I mean, if, if the idea is to try and get back to an agenda oh. you can control, I'm not sure the First Minister's meeting will give them that opportunity. I think that number one thing on the agenda is what's going on on the, on the blockades at the moment. If the Prime Minister has said, We're, we want to listen to Indigenous leaders, please come to the table here, I think that's an important piece. Right. The guy's never shoved, shied away from a tough meeting. He walks into tough crowds all the time. That's not going to be an issue. It's worse, I think, if it doesn't get addressed. So I think the FMM, whether it goes right, well or doesn't go well, is the right thing to do. But let's be hopeful that these talks that are currently happening now, yeah. that are going to happen over the next few days, are fruitful. The hereditary chiefs have put three issues on the table that need to be resolved. RCMP presence, obviously the construction, uh, and, uh, and, and the police are not doing patrols right. in, in, on those areas. Is, if there's movement on those issues, then perhaps a process can be put in place so that, to Susan's point, that the wet sweat and will be able to have a voice and that that will be heard in this process. And I think that the Prime Minister is going to wear this, and I, I think a First Minister's meeting is a good step. I'm just saying I'm not sure that it's going to succeed in changing the channel for the government. Quick final word, you on... on uh, yeah, well, uh, as Robin it, alluded to earlier, the First Minister's meeting is also going to have to deal with climate and energy and finding a balance there, and uh, who knows where we'll be with the issue of COVID-19 at, at that juncture as it spreads and causes greater concern around the world. So it won't be the only issue. There's a lot of issues there that they're all going to have to deal with. All right, thanks very much. Talk to you later. Thank you. Thank you. And that is all for another edition of Primetime Politics on CPAC, the cable public affairs channel. I'm Peter Van Dusen. Thanks for watching.